0: Um, welcome to this event. This is the second in a talking, sorry, the Viewing Restricted event series, uh, the, the second in the Talking Pictures by Sharon Lovell. Um, my name is Fiona Holland and I work on the Global Civil Society Yearbook Project at the Centre for the Study of Global Governance. And together with LSE Arts we organised the exhibition Viewing Restricted which is currently on show in the Atrium Gallery in the old building until the 14th of June, and this associated event series, which comprises artist talks and panel discussions and special screenings. You can find out more about them um, online and in this brochure, and there are a few copies left at the entrance there. Um, so tonight's talk is by Sharon Lovell, who is the photographer for Viewing Restricted for Shanghai. And I'm going to say a little bit about um, Sharon, but you're going to see obviously much more about her work and about her Um, On screen. She's worked in Shanghai for three years as a documentary photographer, photojournalist, working for newspapers and magazines, mainly in Europe and the US, and also for development agencies and sometimes multinational corporations, and now for LSE. She began um, her career photographing jewellery for advertising purposes and realised that that's not what she was trained for um, at Bolton University, where she did an MA in photojournalism. And she's continued her training actually in China uh, through um, Bolton University, who run um, summer summer schools there. Um, I haven't met uh, Sharon until recent recent weeks, and one thing I can vouch for is her dedication to the project. Um, At one point, um, She lost all her equipment and all her work through a burglary um, and said to me, I don't think I can produce it in the time um, that you need it by. And this is one, uh, I think, one incident where our very flexible deadlines on this project uh, came in handy. And so Sharon went out and reproduced all the work uh, all over again. Um, So I was obviously delighted about that and very relieved and very thankful for Sharon for doing that. Um, What we're going to do is, um, Sharon will show. Excerpts from her work full viewing restricted, uh, which is called Living in the Shadows, as uh, currently on show in the atrium, it's produced by David Campbell, and then an excerpt from her work on HIV and AIDS in China. And there'll be time for questions in between, if you like those two pieces. Um, if you can remember, although it's a small room, um, to, are you using microphones for questions? Um, we
1: can do it if you
0: want. I think because it's, it's going to be podcast event. If you could wait till the microphone comes to you for questions, that would probably be best, so it's all picked up. Thank you.
2: Hi, good evening. Um, Just want to go on from Fiona. The the MA I did in China um, was quite pivotal. Um, I'd done a stills photography degree before um, and the MA I did incorporated a lot of multimedia and, um, you know, I'd always been very much a journalist in terms of my approach to photography. suddenly all this other material that I'd kind of been habitually collecting like interviews and text and research, um, there was suddenly a way for me to output it um, by integrating both audio with with visuals. Um, I'm going to be showing and talking about two pieces of work, firstly the the piece produced here for the LSE um, and then follow that with some questions and then an earlier piece and then again following with some questions, um, but really talking about, how the, you know, really talking about collecting interview material, putting with pictures and um, how that really changes the dynamic of the work and, and why I choose, you know, if I would be working on a longer term project, why I would always choose to, to work in that way. Okay. Um, And I hope by showing the work and then discussing it, having some questions that will sort of demonstrate why, you know, why I think that approach is relevant. And this is going to be about a 10 minute, about a 10 minute extra. We have
3: been through the various spices of life. The sour, sweet, bitter, spicy, and even numbing. I am a person shaped by life. No matter how crazy or poor, what circumstances I'm in or whether I can survive or not, this is my life. I left home because my family was poor and life was hard with too many brothers in a tiny little house. I remember when there was nothing left to eat, my mother walked at two kilometers to buy dried corn to grind into flour for porridges, so everyone might eat a little bit. I first came to Shanghai in 1998. I was so bad that day arrived in Shanghai. I only had 300 yuan given to me by my mother. When I arrived, I called a friend who told me to catch a bus and meet him in a far suburb. I dared not spend money and walked. It was cold, raining, and I hadn't eaten. He helped me get work on a construction site, carrying steel bars for 35 yuan a day. The hardest time I've experienced as a migrant worker was that time. I was so angry. I had worked on that construction site for half a year and did not receive any pay and the boss ran away too. There are always many different bosses, and it's common for them to get away without paying. Right across from the construction site, there was a wholesale vegetable market. I thought I'd try some small business, so I started selling vegetables while I was still working on site. The first day, I bought some garlic. Slowly, I got a hand of it, and later sold vegetables full time. I'd wake up at 1 AM and go to Dong I Road to sell vegetables until 7 am when black cats go to work. Black cats are those in charge of city and street management. They forbid you from selling on the street. When they come out, we would run home. Whatever vegetable we have left, we would cook it and eat it after I ride my cart out to fix bicycles. If I see something on the ground like a used water thermos, i pick it up to sell at the garbage collection center yet I've even worked as a garbage collector. I thought people from my hometown are very far away and will not see me doing this. If other people see me, they don't know me, so I won't be ashamed. I usually sleep one hour in the afternoon. At night, I go to sleep around 9.30 and 1 a.m. But sometimes even when the alarm goes off, I can't get up to sleep in until three or four. If I sleep outside, I can wake up at 1 and I go and purchase wholesale vegetable. I worry about my children's education. Our hooker are Sichuanese. My kids go to school for migrant kids, not local Shanghainese school, which are not concerned with making sure your kids go to university. They just want to make money and provide a safe place to leave your kids when you are laboring away. We don't have any connections, so can't get our kids into local schools. If you don't know anyone important, then you can't get in. What can we do if it's not fair? Who can we blame but ourselves? We just don't have the ability. Actually, they shouldn't take any money from us for schooling. If education is supposed to be free, that's the way it should be. Shanghai is part of China. Other provinces are also part of China. So they should not charge us anything. In our hometown, it only cost 90 RMB for senior High. Now it is already 900. If we go to see a doctor in the hospital, we must pay full price. The local Shanghainese have health insurance. We cannot apply for it because we don't have a hukou. We're considered a vagrant population. We have no specific status and therefore cannot apply. Why did I come to Shanghai? Because Shanghai is a developing metropolis. Out of this whole country, Shanghai is a good place to make money. I must raise my three children and make my business work. Whatever money I make is for my family. They are all I have. This is also my business. We are building a foundation unable to save anything yet. The future is all about our kids growing up, getting an education, and making some money in the future. We need to save some money for our kids. We have not achieved the best scenario. My wife and me discussed this. We work so hard you still live in such a shitty shack. We want to live in a Shanghai suite, a place with a living room that will be our pride and joy. Every day we work hard to make money, but life is slowly passing us by. We never had a chance to enjoy life.
4: Other people introduced us to each other, we used to be in the same work unit. We were introduced by my aunt, there is no free dating in the village. I only met him the day before we were married while arranging the furniture details. It's been over 15 years now. I thought if the marriage will be good, it will be good. If bad, then I will still have to bid. My aunt told me he was a good person, very honest, and he is, even now. After we married, he went back to Beijing, and I stayed home farming and uh, looking after the child. He came back in a year. He came back because he couldn't work there anymore. Plus, I was having a hard time taking care of the kid at home. Later we had to borrow a few thousand to come to Shanghai. We left two older kids at home with my mother. Left them there for three years. Then when we had the youngest child, I went back to give birth at home. I stayed 40 days and brought all the kids back to Shanghai. After we brought them here, we brought food with us from home and fed them on this and that. And this is how we lived. It's like this in China. The price of recyclables has dropped, but housing doesn't drop, and food doesn't drop. If these things would drop, our lives would be like before, which was livable. If there's no income, only expenses, how will we live? At that time, we still had a bit of money. Not a lot, but enough to bring up two kids. We only want to raise the children, after they are older, we can make more money. Our relatives are also recyclers. Only my youngest sister and her husband have stable jobs. I don't think recycling prices can drop further, so for now, we just eat more frugally. Less meat, more vegetables. Other prices should drop too, if not, the recyclables have to go up a bit. We are not sure what is really going on. Our rent is 400 yuan a month. We rented this room early and have lived here for 6 years. It's hard to find these little houses now and the rent is so high and keeps on rising. The room used to be 260 yuan and a bigger, but the landlord divided it in half, and now rents each space for 400. My hope for the kids is for them to have ability to get into university, then it will be easy for them to find jobs. That's my only hope. I don't expect too much. Nowadays, university is so expensive. If my kids get good grades, they could try to get a scholarship. If one child goes, I can probably afford it. Today a garbage scavenger came by dragging his stuff along. He asked me where can I sell this garbage. He was lame and full of dirt, so I told him to sail somewhere close by. But he said the close ones wouldn't take it. He wanted to take it to our collection station. I told him straight, you'd be too tired to drag it that far." He was already covered in sweat. This is the way I am, blunt and straightforward. The poorer a person is, the more I respect and relate to them. There are also people I
1: feel like I will never be on the same
2: level with. Okay, there's one, there's one more family. It's based on three families. There's one more family who, if we get time, um, I'll show later. But I just want to allow plenty of time for questions and um, just to. Talk about, you know, why I think audio is so important um, when working with certain communities. Um, you know, particularly when representing more marginalised or disenfranchised communities. I think the integration of um, recorded, you know, direct recorded interview um, certainly helps the narrative to be led by the subject rather than the observer. Um, and, you know, hopefully, I hope that it provides a channel for voices to be heard that are normally not. Um, and I think also by just by basing it, you know, by looking at things on a very micro level, I hope that it would, you know, would take some kind of more abstract issues and um, make them, you know, more real, more tangible for the everyday sort of audience. Um, and there's four major, you know, there's four major elements um, which you know, contribute to my decision to integrate audio. Firstly, you know, the whole platform of a slideshow, you know, you're suddenly able to integrate text, audio and pictures all in one sequence um, and just communicating a sort of wider contextual um, information. And again, yet yeah, the inclusion, an emphasis on the narrative being led by the, by the subject matter themselves. And I think that, I think that kind of, I think this sort of individual macro look, um, steers away from um, stereotype to a kind of homogenized portrayal. I think particularly I was, you know, I was very lucky to get a commission that, um, you know, didn't make, you know, normally as a journalist I feel like very compromised in terms of um, cutting corners and fortunately, the, you know, the sort of time span and the budget for this means that um, no corners were cut and it was a very clear aim right from the beginning to move away from um, what I perceive as a very homogenized portrayal of migrants in China. Um, and fourthly, just the sort of layering information um, brings out complexities in quite complex, convoluted stories. Um, you know, you're often forced to simplify or give some kind of overall um, analysis, you know, particularly in a photo ass- a still photo essay or a text piece, um, and this very much is just led by the people saying things as they as they think. Um, and not really needing to draw any conclusions, but just putting things out there and, and allowing some of the complexities to surface without really, without really having to make any analysis on that. Um, that's it. Hello. <laughs> um,
5: yeah. Um, um.
2: Think it's, I think it's like maybe a personal approach mm-hmm. and also something to do with the time span. Um, but the interviews are really, you know, every, every participant was really well briefed. Mm-hmm. They knew exactly what the final product was going to be in what sort of platform it was going to be shown mm-hmm. and um, did really extensive interviews with them, very informal. Um, and they actually brought out a lot, of, you know, really did try and let them take the lead. And they raise questions that I would never have thought to ask, and a lot of that, a lot of those questions, I think a lot of those issues, are put into the work. Um, you know, is about poverty, and you know, as you know, as researching around it and looking at policy, and as a view, you know, I was very much focused on um, financial access to education and access to healthcare, and I felt what came, what came from um, the subject matter themselves. Was more sort of emotional things, you know, this kind of living with like chronic instability, um, being separated from children, um, discrimination—not just not 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 from outsiders, but this kind of internalized, you know, two-tier society that that you know that's really apparent in Shanghai. So, I, I d- you're right, you know, it is an interpretation of all that material, of course it's produced and there's music that kind of dramatises points of it, um, but I do feel very much like it, it was quite led by mm-hmm. it quite led Yeah, by of that.
5: course, one can never escape it, I mean, everything is in bit it's not a critique, I'm just so surprised that you yeah. point out, well, this makes this special this brings us closer to, um, to reality.
2: Because it's so, such a crazy, like, bureaucratic process. Um, and is it also because they've got more than one child? Sometimes? Yes. Yeah, some people... I mean, some of these people just can't register because if they registered, it would bring up all these issues because often in rural areas they do have more than one child. Um, but it's not just... I mean, the Hukou system, it's not just geographical. It doesn't mean that you can't... It doesn't just mean that you can't move from place to place, but you actually have a rural... Huko or an urban hukou. So if you if you're an urban hukou um, holder, then you can move, you can transfer much more easily between cities. But moving from a rural place into an urban place, um, you know, it, it it's much more difficult. You need you need all sorts of certificates. You need to be formally employed with a contract for a year. If you've got more than one, you know, if you've got more than one child, that could uh, that, that will just throw problems at you, um, you know. A lot of a lot of the workforce obviously doesn't have contracts and they move around. And
1: Is there any help
6: for them, or are they just scared to show their faces? places, you know, gives out food. Or whatever they're,
2: they're not living in. They're not living in that sort of poverty. Right. They're definitely on the line. They're definitely sort of vulnerable. Um, so much more vulnerable than others. You know, Mr. Song, who's the first character, yeah, much more self-sufficient, running his own business. The Jan, secondly, because um, of their line of work, much more vulnerable. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are there are there are NGOs, but there are people around helping. But I think they find their support from their communities. Really. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hi. Um, I
7: just came back. Tra- they are
2: translated the interviews oh, are translated right. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> no, <go on. laughs> well, I guess
7: I've changed my question slightly um, the World Expo is coming to Shanghai in 2010 just like the Beijing Olympics and they're incredibly proud of it I mean, mm. they show off with glee the plans for the uh, Urban Expo Centre with horrific English I might say um, do you know if they're using the migrant workers for that so I'm migrant workers they sort of sleep day work on such a big project, or they try and keep that more um, to I, legal migrants?
2: I would imagine. I haven't been down to the, I haven't actually been to the site um, since, it's all migrants, all migrants, right? Yeah, I would imagine it's like 99%. It in Beijing,
7: they built the Olympic site, obviously everything,
2: And they also sent them home during the Olympics and I'm sure they'll do the same thing during the expo.
7: Mm-hmm. There two more questions? Yeah. Um, I had a question about sort of how you kind of access you get and firstly how you go about sort of arranging it. And then within that whether being say Western
2: Very hit and miss. I have to talk to a lot of people. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear. You know, there's a lot of fear of the media, um, and that just writes a lot of people off from the beginning. I was, you know, I'm always pretty very honest about what I do, um, where it's going to go, what format it's going to be shown in, and people either trust that or and understand that and want to be involved or or, or not. Um, speak Chinese, I tried to go, I tried to go, you know, there's a lot of tactical side I use, you know, for this project I went through, um, a Chinese woman who was doing a PhD, um, and her thesis was the Huco system, so she'd done a lot of interviews. Um, and then it was, like with Mr. Song, it was just very, like, I just met him. Um, um, and it takes a lot of time, you know, even when I've kind of presented it, it still took a lot of time. The, the Jan family, the recycling family took me about 3 or 4 visits before they would tell me what they did for a living. Um, there's a lot of, yes, yeah, just a lot of shame and a lot of fear, but I think it's just a process of putting in enough time with people, um, to get past that. Um, and in terms of, uh, problems working in China, yeah, it's insane, it's insane. You know, the most innocuous stories it's just so inhibited to work you know it's just crazy to work there really at times um, but I think I think it's getting easier you know you're allowed to move around more freely than you ever were um, there is you know people still people still question you I've found lately on a few stories people stop me question me check my visa ask me what I'm doing and if you explain it in the right way they'll actually let you continue doing what you're doing which is you know, quite a quite a good step forwards. It,
6: yeah. Is the population still
2: increasing? Um, I don't know. Because at one time the loneliest person had one child. Yeah. And still the same. No, because I think it seems that, that there are more children now. Yeah, it it has c- it has curbed off. It ha- the population has curbed. I don't know. I don't know what it's doing right now. In um. They are changing policy in the countries often in the countryside you're actually allowed to um you know you you're allowed to have you're allowed to have a first attempt if you have a boy you stop there and um, if you have a girl you can carry on playing yeah. <laughs> um, and in the urban centers you know if you're if you're if you're both single children and you marry then you can have two children at this point so it's kind of it's, it's shifting a little bit but for the main it's, it's still one child yeah. policy Hi um,
1: I just wanted to say I actually really appreciate
2: Firstly, um, the Mr. Song. I just I kind of asked. I asked friends, and you know, I sort of put an email out. Does anybody know someone interesting? Um, and a friend got back to me and said, "Yeah, I just you know I did a very quick report the other day, and I and I met this guy um, working in a vegetable market, and kind of drew me a map, and um, I just I just turned up and met him." And you kind of knew immediately that he would be fantastic. After going through, you know, after going through a lot of people and trying to explain what I was doing, and um, suddenly he just kind of said, "Come and come and sit behind my stool." On so, my d- g-
1: so, do you find this as much about leaning on your human connections with individuals as to how you get led to these? Who is the right person for you? Because it's much about human connection between the two of you yeah and, and for the so basically for them to be willing those things rather than being pre yeah have a pre-vision about who the right
2: person yeah. be. it is but also trying to find someone representative i mean you have to I, you need to find someone who's really willing to be involved um, and to, you know especially with the longer term projects because you end up taking a lot of people's time and um, you know you know really being around them a lot but um, at the same time, researching enough around the subject that you—the mm-hmm. choice ultimately has to be this person is representative. Um, I suppose. speak. Yeah. Which is, for, yeah, I think fundamental. Because even if you go to a translator um, for sort of finer points or interview, you re- you know, I think you need a direct connection with people for them to trust you.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask if you spoke Chinese.
1: Right. <laughs> 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 but actually, I'd also like to ask is there any chance you can plug your laptop into the audio system?
3: Because I'm having a lot of trouble. Sure, you hearing.
2: I don't know how to turn it up. That's what Sabine was saying. I can try because I'm just about to shut. It's a good time because I'm just about to do the other one. Do
0: you know anything about this?
1: (laughs) Don't bother everyone else.
2: It's pretty quiet, is it?
1: Yeah, there's I think the
2: audio it's here. It's these yeah, here, isn't it? Cable but that's going. Ah, okay. That's the moving one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the one. Right. That looks good. Is that going to your machine? <laughs> I'll try it first before the we black it off. Surviving on handouts eating for basic daily meals.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. But yeah. Gorbaugh, his wife, attempted suicide, fearing that they would infect their own children. They survived, but Gorbaugh was left permanently blinded and Chew's health seriously weakened. It might be if can get it
4: working. If, if you can, can get it working. <coughs>
2: Around a year ago, Chu contracted tuberculosis. He took a six month course of treatment, which usually clears infection, but still has a persistent cough and chest pain, suggesting that the TB. Thank you. is increasingly inevitable and prostitution will serve as a major channel okay. commercial sex is prolific in China and sex workers have shown unnerving nerving okay. increase so thank, thank you thank you cheers Two years ago when I was really just getting to grips with um, audio and recording on my iPod and not really knowing how to how to put big chunks of audio in, into a slideshow like this. Um, China's AIDS epidemic emerged in the early 80s among intravenous drug users in China's southern Yunnan province bordering Burma. It is believed that 60% of drugs produced in the Golden Triangle are trafficked through China, much of it along the old Burma road. AIDS has also snaked its way along this route, traversing some of China's most rural and remote regions via shared needles. Northbound on this route lies the mountainous region of Liangshan, an area populated by the impoverished E minority. It is Liangshan where my journey begins, before reversing back down the old Burma road to the border region, where China's highest rates of HIV infection are found. Chu Bu Shobu contracted HIV sometime during his decade-long heroin addiction. He and his family live in a small village in Liangshan, Livelihoods here depend largely on subsistence farming, but Chu long since sold his land for drugs, and the family live in poverty, surviving on handouts, even for basic daily meals. After testing positive, Chu and Gworgor, his wife, attempted suicide, fearing that they would infect their own children. They survived, but Gworgor was left permanently blinded, and Chu's health seriously weakened. <laughs>
4: a Around a year
2: ago, Chu contracted tuberculosis. He took a six-month course of treatment which usually clears infection but still has a persistent cough and chest pain, suggesting that the TB is still active. He hasn't visited a doctor since, but TB is the leading cause of death among HIV infected people, accounting for a third of AIDS deaths worldwide. Located south of Liangshan is the town of Li, infamous for its flow of drugs, sex and gambling. It lies just over the border from Burma's Shan State, a major source of heroin production. Prices here are as low as 70 pence for a hit of the purest grade heroin. The border is more sweating than porous. An afternoon watching the fence reveals an array of things crossing people, chickens, babies, batteries, and other unidentified packages squeezed through holes in the fence. Injecting drug use has been the major catalyst for the epidemic and continues to be a huge factor, but the sexual epidemic has begun and transmission rates have now officially overtaken drugs. China is unique in its rurally concentrated epidemic, but a generalised urban outbreak is increasingly inevitable and prostitution will serve as a major channel. Commercial sex is prolific in China and sex workers have shown unnerving increases in HIV infection in recent years here on the border the only thing rivalling the drug trade is a sex industry workers are a mixture of han minority and burmese serving an equally diverse mix of traders and truckers all groups tend to be transitory making them difficult to track test and educate the sexual epidemic in motion has a potential to become widespread china has a large sexually active population and a focus on drugs and high-risk groups seems to distort public perceptions of the risk of contracting hiv add to this huge levels of migration and extremely poor levels of knowledge and awareness in my hotel room in Rayleigh, i find a sachet of genital gel an English translation informs me that it protects from a number of STDs, including HIV. In Rayleigh Hospital, Jing Po La, pictured here, is transfixed with his newly prescribed antiretroviral treatment after being diagnosed with AIDS just a week previously. Sharing needles for 10 years and visibly ill, Jing had no idea of his HIV status. China has some impressive policies in place, including free antiretroviral treatment for all patients facing financial difficulty. Medication saves, extends, and improves quality of life, but treatment and care remain disparate, with just 3% of those eligible receiving treatment. Between Ray Li and Liangshan lies Husar, a typical village on the trafficking route, devastated by drugs and AIDS. What's surprising here are successful levels of treatment and care, fueled by a HIV positive villager outreaching to some 40 patients, delivering information on his moped. It's small localised efforts like this that seem the most effective path to mobilising policy. Back in Liangshan, things are very different. Huge regional disparities exist in the delivery of treatment, care and education. Rural areas bear the brunt of China's degenerating health system. It is estimated that 48% of Chinese can't afford to see a doctor when they fall ill. The urgent need for scaling up HIV treatment and care is just not feasible in regions where the most basic primary health care doesn't exist. An estimated 140,000 children in China are orphaned by AIDS. In Liangshan, I find many in the care of aging grandparents, struggling to provide for them and anxious about the future. Poverty and stigma compound the hardships and marginalization faced by all those affected by AIDS. It's not just a health issue, but a political and social one. Chu Bu fears AIDS will wipe the E people from history. We just don't know how long it will take, he tells me, punctuated by his constant cough. It's almost certainly too late for Chu, but there is a window of opportunity to act, albeit a narrowing one. It was very formal and very extended, so there was definitely certain issues that I wanted to bring up and talk about, um, but because of the time frame, and because I spent a lot of time with the families outside the interview, I kind of felt like I knew what was in, you know, what was important for them. So were the audience um,
6: like one interview that you did, or were they asked to of
2: various conversations all the time? They were all kind of done more towards the end. And by that point, I spent with some families longer, with some families shorter, but already made, you know, five, six, ten visits with each family. And then I kind of based my interview questions on what had already come up with me just visiting and sort of being around them. and um, you know ended up being a lot more about the whole production side, and I think, you know, what I'm doing is a real evolution. I'm not an expert, it's a real kind of evolving, um, like, working methodology. For me, the, the audio is really important, and that's really crucial, and it's something that I really think I'll keep working with. The whole dramatisation, maybe that's, that's something that I'll reflect on. You know, it's good, and it's really interesting to hear that point, that maybe the, more simple, you
1: know, the less you're taking through, the more you can reflect as you go. Charles? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'd like to endorse that, because I, I felt actually that, you know, I think, you're a photographer, but I think it's, because it was a piece of reportage, the audio was actually so strong that you could almost listen to it and get message without actually seeing the pictures, because it was actually extremely interesting. Yeah. And the pictures became very much a secondary... Uh, same thing, and it, it wasn't so much coming to see pictures; it was coming actually to hear a story. And, mm. and um, when I felt that I didn't, almost didn't get time to evaluate the photography um, because I was so involved with the with the message, and it was extremely interesting. Mm.
2: Mm. That'd be good to. Hear. And I
1: could hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no I'd really
2: yeah. like to know that that the, couldn't I'd a a f- f- <laughs> really like to know a general consensus um, you know on that on that kind of very simple versus the uh, more produced one for me definitely um, I'm very happy with the inclusion, with the narrative being driven by the interview material on the first one but um, maybe, maybe less jazzy production Transport that information into the pictures. because um, as a photographer, even if you offer text, you know, it's very rare that, that anyone would take the text. Mm-hmm.
6: Um, Are you gonna, gonna become a filmmaker? <laughs>
2: um, yes again there, no, isn't it? I don't really know, it's it's interesting because you know, you called it a documentary just then and sometimes I'm thinking well, what is really the difference between this and a documentary? The only thing different is, you know, there's still skills in there and I think, um, I, I, you know, I think skills don't replace moving image. I was just
7: wondering, do you keep
2: in contact with the people, uh, sort of after you're done with your Yeah, very much, very much. I'm not, I mean, you know, off, I'll work on shorter stories when, no, I'll, I'll never see those people again. Um, but actually, yeah, every I mean every person. I included the Chinese interview, which was really what I wanted to do, um, it meant huge reams of text, and it's already quite texty, it's just, like just logistically, um, yeah, it just means people are reading so much text. But yeah, I would really that would be ideal. term like very personal project it began as a personal project but something that I pretty much was sure that I could output um, and market and I did go back with you know writers at different stages and it became a newspaper feature and a magazine feature and then the image and images of sold sort of individually. The the piece you know with audio is is on you know it's only it's never been delivered on you know sort of public platform other than this really. Um, with the second piece, being a commission from the LSE, you know the whole point of Unrestricted is to sort of try and move um, visual representations of poverty on and that was, that was definitely much more thoughtful in my aim um, and I think, you know, there is a lot to be said about sort of democratising information both in and out of the subject matter. Um, and I do think it's quite interesting. I think with the HIV piece, I had ideas um, at one point that, you know, this could uh, this could be used at, on one platform as media. It could be more used on another platform as advocacy. And with a little bit of shifting around, it could actually go back into local community as a piece of um, local advocacy. You know, if it was translated into um, local dialect, um, you know, this could also be, you know, it's not just like, you know, developing world going out to first world. It could it could be used on a number of different platforms and I would love, I would absolutely love if it wasn't just, um, you know, kind of southern hemisphere going out to northern hemisphere, if it was, if it could be used um, more locally as well. And I think, because of the comprehensiveness of the audio and the information and the pictures, you know, rearranging slightly, it it could be output for different different causes.
1: Okay,
5: one
1: last question, (laughs) just quickly. How did you find out about the?
2: I can't remember. It was sent to me two different ways. It was sent to me on two different. I don't know via two different emails. and I knew that, you know, there was, it just was very interesting for me. You know, the, the MA I did was really heavily kind of ethics-based and this whole idea of sort of moving on um, virtual representation was interesting.
0: Before we thank um, Sharon Lovell, I just wanted to point out that if you want to see um, uh, the migrants' piece, it's on show in the Atrium Gallery until the 14th of June. It's on a loop and it's got ear, um, earphones Um, The next Talking Pictures is the 21st of May. Um, Same place, same time, Uh, different speakers. It's Oliver Shannon and Adam Broonberg talking about their work in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, Thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you, Sharon,